0: A quick reminder to my faithful listeners, if you enjoy listening to Devilry, please share it with your friends and family. It really helps to get the podcast out there. Thank you. The following is part two of Echoes Through Time. If you have not listened to part one, I encourage you to pause this episode and listen to it before you continue. Enoch turned out to be a blessing to the Cameron family. Little did either of them know it at the time. He was unemployed, lived discreetly on the property, and had grown up there all his life. He had no family or friends besides his dog, Butch. Being an old man of 90, Enoch had outlived many of the people he once knew and called his friends, and was far too old to be hired at a normal wage salary. Harold struck an idea as he slowly got to know the old man. He offered him the job not long after, being a cook and doing odd jobs around the house as needed. Enoch had jumped at the prospect of a steady income and the dignity of an honest day's work, but would only accept it under one condition, that he was never required to stay in the house after dark. He had lived there his entire life, and he knew the stories people told of the old house had no desire to experience it for himself. When offered to take the third floor quarters in the house, he quickly refused, opting for his unheated, significantly smaller, one-room barn home instead. Harold was practically ecstatic. After a year of living in the old mansion on Rose Tree Lane, he had finally secured a servant who wouldn't flake at the sound of disembodied soft footsteps. Not only that, but at his Advanced age, Harold felt sure that Enoch knew the origin of the mysterious visitations that haunted them in the dead of night. If that was the case, however, Enoch was keeping a tight lip. Anytime Harold brought up the old owners or the history of the mansion, Enoch would say nothing and make up an excuse to leave. Now being employed, he had something to do. For his part, Enoch loved being back at work at the old house. He was a kind and honest soul who believed in working hard like his mother had taught him. He knew whole tracts of the Bible by heart, though he could not read or write. Like all men, he had his own weaknesses. It was found, after some time had gone by, that on Saturdays, which he had off, he could be found wandering the grounds of the old house inebriated beyond belief, Harold, who had been suspicious of the old man's claim that he could recite the whole book of Job by heart, walked away convinced after spying him doing so in a salutation to the birds and empty fields that once rolled in that quiet place. It was in one of these states, not long after, that Harold devised a plan to get the story of Hyleford Manor out of Enoch when he was perhaps a little less guarded. It was a cool trick, maybe, but Harold's gnawing inability to explain what was happening and growing curiosity about the house overpowered his dignity and he asked anyway. Coming up to Enoch one Saturday while he was seated on the bench in the garden house, Harold asked if he could join him. Enoch nodded with a slight smile, tapping his chest where the small bottle of gin rested. "'Sure, boss,' he said. "'Was your mother here when the house was built, Enoch?' "'No, not her. "'My grandmother, though. "'That was back when the Merchantsons lived here. "'She lived in the old servants' quarters. "'Good for her, too. "'If she had slept in the house, "'she would have died like the rest of the family in the fire.' "'How's that?' Harold asked, confused. "'There ain't been nothing but bad luck in this old house, boss.' The back part there, that's the foundation to the first house. It burned down in the first two or three years of being built. All seven family members burned up with it. They's buried over there in the crypt. He pointed to a hill not far off, the top of which was perched gnarled oak. Harold scratched his head, puzzled. He had never seen any grave markers on the property throughout the time he had been there and felt sure the old drunk was losing it. Enoch continued, as if sensing the doubt. You knows up there beyond the wooden fence you'll see a stone. It's leaning on the side like this. He stopped and began to lean to one side, and in so doing nearly fell off the bench. The stone slab fell over when I was but a boy. That's the entrance. Down there they buried him, just stacked him on top of each other, All seven, he mused. conversation trailed on, and after some time, Enoch began to sober up. He went his way not long after. For a week or so, Harold was out of town, but the next Saturday, he grabbed one of his boys and went in search of the mysterious crypt. After some time looking around the old stone, Hal found a large indentation in the ground around him and figured it must have been the old entrance. He and Harold grabbed a few spades, flashlights, and a ladder from the house and got to work. After some digging, they unearthed the entrance, bricked with large, gothic arches from a century before. They carefully lowered the ladder and climbed down inside the pitch-black crypt, mesmerized. It was just as Enoch had said, the old family was stacked on top of one another but in the passage of time, the caskets had rotted away to dust, and all that remained were fragments of bone. Harold's flashlight flickered across old skulls of the house's previous owners, and then off of the old silver casket handles now scattered among the rubble, lying among the bones. He pointed his flashlight up, marking the old arcways with awe. When We reached the center of the ceiling He felt a strange sensation that it was moving, rotating. Then he noticed that he was becoming very lightheaded, and yelled to his son to get out of the tomb. They scrambled up the ladder as fast as they could, Harold having to pull Hal up the last half as his legs began to give out. Once outside again, unable to catch their breath, Hal stammered out the question, What happened down there? No oxygen, Harold breathed. We must have used it all up while we were down there. We could have died. Because of their haste, they had neglected to tell anyone what they were doing besides Enoch himself, who refused to accompany them out of fear that they would disturb the rest of the dead and bring a curse upon themselves. The reality that the crypt could have claimed them as its own dawned on them and a shuddering horror they cared not dwell on too long. They quickly covered up the entrance as well as they could and never spoke of it to the family in fear of alarming them. Enoch watched warily over the next few weeks to see if anything untoward would befall the two Camerons that dared open the old grave, but nothing ever came of that adventure, but a grisly story of almost death. It was not long after, on a Saturday morning, that Enoch approached Harold with an odd request. He asked for a lift about three miles down the road to see his girlfriend, Willie May. After overcoming a shock that Enoch, in his 90s, Toothless, five foot two, and thin as a twig, could have a girlfriend. Harold was happy to give him a ride. He had business in the office he needed to take care of anyway, and would drop the old man off on his way there. During the short drive, Harold chanced to catch Enoch in a jovial mood and capitalized on it, asking about the house again. Enoch pointed to an old, beautiful stained glass window. That shined into the library. It was the Old Miss that put that in there? After the Merchinsons died, that is. They who had this house rebuilt. Old Miss? Harold questions. Yeah, boss. The doctor's wife. She loved everything just so. The doctor had it done, but it was Old Miss that wanted it? He paused, remembering. was she who built the summer house. Then it had roses, all the way up and around it. She sounds like she was an unusual woman. How long ago was that? Harold asked. I don't rightly remember. I was small still. Must have been 80, 85 years ago. Enoch touched Harold's arm and pointed to the driveway. Admittedly sorry for the short conversation and agreed he'd be back in a few hours after his visit to the office to pick Enoch up. He got a glimpse of a large woman letting Enoch into the side door before pulling away. On his return he found Enoch already starting out for home and slowed down to pick him up on the side of the road. The smell of gin lingered about him as he got in. Harold picked up the conversation right away asking Enoch if he knew of any tunnels leading into the house. "'Tunnels? No, never did,' he replied. "'I thought maybe the summer house,' Harold trailed off. "'I don't know nothing about that,' said Enoch. "'Then, shortly after, could be, I suppose. "'But I know they kept runaway slaves there. "'It was one of those stations.' "'Harold lit up with excitement. "'Runaway slaves?' he repeated.' Those must have been exciting times. Maybe I was too young to know much about it, but I remember them keeping folks up at the house. Never saw them, but sometimes I'd clean up after them, if they's hurt or bleeding, Enoch reminisced. You know that means there must be a secret room, replied Harold, excitement still palpable in his voice. Why you need another room? Ain't that house big enough? asked Enoch, incredulous. Of course it is. It's just, maybe that room has a secret entrance that someone could come in through and, well, do things, Harold trailed off. Them that come into that big house don't need no secret way, Enoch said grimly. During this time, The haunting activity around the house never ceased. The same slippered footsteps shuffled up the stairs from the library, down the second floor hall, and up to the third floor where they ceased. Doors open and shut on their own. Knobs turned when no one was near. And the invisible visitor with his heavy footfalls crunching up the gravel driveway, came a few times a week. He'd mount the stairs and cease his march at the front door. The Camerons, for their part, learned to live with their fellow lodgers and continued life as normal as they could, with visitors coming in from out of town. The next family member to make a stay in the house was Harold's brother, Colonel Arthur Cameron. This time, they warned the Colonel of the strange events that persisted in the mansion, to which he scoffed at. But he jumped at the history of the old house and with determination set about searching for the elusive secret room that was supposed to have been used during the time of the Underground Railroad. To the military-trained Arthur who treated hauntings with incredulity, was met with perplexed silence when, on his first night's stay, he heard ominous footsteps crunching up the gravel driveway. He looked out of his second floor window, which was right above the porch, but saw no one. He heard the footsteps mount the porch, as it had done so many times before, and come to the front door. Arthur waited for the inevitable knock, puzzled as to who would be visiting so late but heard nothing. After some time, he shouted out the window, but again, no one answered. He stormed downstairs, unlocked the front door, and stared out into nothing but moonlight in an empty front yard. He took a few steps out and peered around, but saw no one. He talked it over with Harold and the family over breakfast, refusing to believe in the existence of ghosts He insisted that there must be a secret entrance to the house that explained the events, and set about his short vacation attempting to find it. He grabbed a measuring tape from Enoch, and got to work the same morning. He followed the footsteps of the older boys, going over every fireplace and wooden panel wall, knocking, pushing, feeling, and measuring his way through every room. He even measured the outside of the house, and began to draw diagrams, It became all-absorbing for him. As he did not complete his investigation during his initial stay, he flew up each weekend to work on it. It was during one of those weekends that Harold received a phone call while working in the office. It was Arthur. Mind if I break a window? he asked. Harold had been wrapping up a meeting and was in no mood for games. I absolutely mind. What on earth for? he stammered. I found a six-foot discrepancy in the basement of the house, by the kitchen. There's a blacked-out window, I want to see what's behind it. Come on, Harold, I'll pay for the replacement," he pleaded. Don't do anything until I get home, Harold said, and promptly ended his meeting and raced home. He found Harold and Cal waiting for him in the basement, ladder and flashlight ready. Harold gave him permission, and Arthur proceeded to smash the window clearing away the debris with a gloved hand. He requested a flashlight and let out a whistle as he peered through. You gotta see this, he cried, coming down the ladder. He handed the flashlight to Harold, who scrambled up and peered through the broken window. He was not looking outside, as had been expected. He was instead looking into a vacant basement room, empty except for an old quilt piled in the corner. Grabbing another ladder, they slipped through the small window and into the hidden room. They observed only one blackened window which led outside and was securely locked. Other than the quilt, there was nothing else in the room. No doors, secret entrances, or the like. Harold figured they were right beneath the kitchen and speculated that there must have been a trap door that was torn out after the kitchen was remodeled before they moved in. The wall, which had been blocked off, must have been put when the risk of hiding runaway slaves began to increase. So Enoch had been right after all, but it still did not answer one pivotal question. What, or who, was walking around that old house, and why? Life didn't stop with a few hauntings, it moved on for the Camerons. The older boys moved out onto the campus to make their commute to classes easier, and servants to help with the younger children continued to come and go. Enoch was the only faithful consistent in the house on Rose Tree Lane, always arriving at six in the morning and leaving before nightfall. He always had been, and always would be, a part of that forgotten time. That is, until the day he disappeared. Before that time, however, one Saturday morning and spring, with only a few months left on the lease, Harold chanced to catch Enoch in a particular mood. He found him sitting in the bench by the yard, looking glum, his elegant old eyes normally alighted were dim, he was staring off into the distance at an old tree. Beautiful old tree, Harold commented. Should have been cut down and burned. Don't rightly know why the old miss never did, Enoch replied. All right, Enoch, let's have it. What's the story with this place? Did the doctor's wife hurt herself under that tree? Harold's exasperation could be felt. I ain't told that story in a long time not even to Willie Mae. Well, you can tell me, we're friends now, aren't we? We'll be gone from here soon, and you won't get any more questions about this damned old house. That you is, boss, that you is, said Enoch, and he sighed as he began his tale. A long time ago, when he was just a boy, A doctor lived in this old home with his wife and daughter. The daughter, whose name was Lisa, was about 14 or 15 years old, with big blue eyes and flowing blonde hair. She had a passion for horses and spent much of her time around the stable. In that time, probably the late 1860s, an owner of a estate like Heilborn was part of high society and his daughter, had been trained since birth to be part of that society. With its balls, its dances, and its sociolite lifestyle, Lisa was a good child, but took after her mother. She was strong-willed, and would do things her own way. She had an innocent trust in people, like many youth do, gullible to the naked terror of the world around them. Whenever she'd come back from school, she'd run to the stables to see her horse. She had her very own, which Ben, the coachman, took special care of while she was away. It was one time, after she came back from school, when the family went for a fox hunt. Lisa stayed behind, under the guise that she needed to study before going back to school. Enoch, for his part, speculated that she had too soft a heart to see something killed. A dance had been planned for later that night and Lisa's mother had it in her mind to take her just to look on to get a glimpse of what she would be entering soon. Ben had sent the young Enoch to the crossroads to get a salve for one of the horses which she said was injured. Enoch did as he was told. Always doing what I was told, Enoch repeated to himself, shaking his head. He recalled looking back down the street, to see Ben walking up the front door, his heavy footsteps crunching the gravel beneath him. This was strange to Enoch, you see, because servants normally entered or inquired through the back door. He saw Lisa come onto the porch, wearing a white dress with flowers. A pink sash wrapped around her waist, which matched her shoes. Enoch turned back and walked on. When he returned some time later, all was quiet. Most of the servants had gone to prepare for the ball that night or were attending the fox hunt with the doctor. Ben was nowhere to be found. Neither, in fact, was Lisa. When the hunting party returned and discovered her absence, they searched all over the house and asked the neighbors. When Enoch was asked if he had any knowledge of Lisa's whereabouts, he told them the story of seeing the coachman talking to her on the porch. It was only then that Ben's absence was noticed and the family began to fear the worst. After a search of the property, they found Lisa's dress under that same tree that Harold and Enoch sat gazing at that warm spring morning. The dress was torn and frayed, with blood on it and on the ground around it. A mixture of terror and fury began to fill the search party. Dogs and guns were called in, and people from the area began to organize into groups, searching the countryside. Lisa's lifeless body was found not long after, near the creek behind the house. The servants, for their part, were the ones that found Ben, that night. When they did, they did not offer him a trial by jury. The justice reserved for him was mob justice. After beating him, they had hung him from that same tree under which he had raped and murdered that poor girl. They didn't wait for the doctor. They didn't want their boss's hands getting dirty on such a fiend as this. Enoch learned that in his absence, when he had seen Ben walk up the driveway, mount the porch, and speak with Lisa, he had baited her out by saying that her beloved horse seemed to be injured. After getting her way from the safety of the house, he had taken her to the tree. When asked why he had done it, he could not answer. Only that he had to have her, and after he had had her, he knew that she couldn't live. When they brought the rope, he seemed almost grateful. He didn't fight or argue when they tied it around his neck and pulled him up the tree. So it must be heard that roams the halls at night, Harold mused. Not her, Enoch said with a start. No, she's in heaven with the angels. It's old Miss that's still here. She went crazy when Lisa died. Not hysterical, not shouting, mind you. It was a quiet crazy. After the funeral, she acted as if nothing happened. She picked flowers and wandered about with a strange look, like she was about to scream, but never did. Soon she stopped doing things. She spent more and more time in the library. You keep this library clean, Enoch, promise. Lisa always loved it, you promise, she told me, and I did, boss. One day, she didn't even get dressed, just took tea in her nightgown and slippers in the library. After she was done, she climbed the stairs to the third floor, took a rope, and hung herself from the window. I was the one that found her there, swaying from side to side, real slow. Harold thanked the morose Enoch for sharing his story and advised him to enjoy the rest of his day off. Departing, he found himself trudging up the same gravel path Ben must have taken when he made his ominous journey to the front door harold shook himself and deliberately entered through the back door into the kitchen the weight of the mystery was leaving him and so too was their time in that old mansion they now had only a few months left on their lease and had begun to search for a new home which they found not very far away another old colonial not as big. His family had shrunk by two as they neared the end of their stay. Hal had entered the army, and Bob, looking to best his brother, had joined the navy. The house, too, seemed less full. Though they did not cease entirely, the strange events they had experienced became less. Enoch, for his part, was sorry to lose his boss. He had saved money, however, and had a good stash for the rest of his retirement to enjoy more than enough gin. Harold had given him a list of extra duties around the house for packing and preparing for their departure. So it was to their surprise, then, the next morning, that Enoch did not show up for work. This was the one and only time this had happened since he first started working for them and Harold had become worried. Thinking that he may have taken ill, Harold decided to go check on him. Entering the barn bedroom, he found Enoch not at home, but a hungry Butch excited to see him. He took Butch up to the house and fed him, allowing him to trot back to the barn to await his master. Harold spent a busy week in Canada for work. When he returned, he found that Enoch was still missing. He decided to check on his girlfriend, Willie May, who suggested that he may have run off on a bender, something that he was known to do from time to time. Harold had a hard time believing this, however. Enoch enjoyed his gin, sure, but never in the time he had worked for him had he been on a bender. Moreover, he only indulged on payday, which had not yet come. He decided to visit the police station and asked if anyone, by his subscription, had been picked up recently. A black man? the officer questioned. Yes, very old, small, and thin, replied Harold. Wearing a white shirt and blue jeans, the officer remarked. Yes, that's him, Harold said with some excitement. Was he picked up for something? He was picked up for being dead, replied the officer. This seemed to stun Harold at first. He had a million questions that poured out all at once. I don't know how long he'd been dead, must have been several days. But he was found by some boys who were out hunting. Seems his head had been smashed in by a 2x4. Hit from the back, he must have died instantaneously. The officer said, reading from the file, he handed it to Harold with frankness. Harold learned that Enoch had been found not far from Halborn, just down the road in fact, in a ravine behind a barn. His savings was found still to be in his room, the motive was unknown. This was the 1960s, racial tension in America was already high, and concern for the death of one lonely old black man was not at the top of police priority. By the time Harold found out about his death, Enoch had been buried in a potter's field, a burial field kept for the poor. No one had attended his funeral. The news hit the Cameron family hard. They had come in their time at Heilborn to view Enoch as more than a servant, as a friend. To Harold, After hearing the strange deaths that seemed to surround the house's history, Enoch was just another soul a sad house claimed as its own to haunt its walls and history. The Cameron family moved on to Valley Forge, into a house that was not in the least bit haunted to their great relief. Harold would only ever have one final otherworldly experience, After retiring, he had fulfilled his lifelong dream of becoming a pastor. One morning, while preparing a sermon in his study, he received the devastating news that his son, Bob, had died unexpectedly from a massive heart attack. Hanging up the phone, understandably shaken, he looked up from his desk to see Bob standing in front of him, smiling. As if to say, all was well for him to carry on. Harold blinked, and the vision was gone. As for Heilborn, after the Cameron family left, it was converted into apartments. No ghostly activity was reported by any of its new inhabitants. Only one portion of the old mansion could never stay rented. The old library. Over time, the land was sold off and the outbuildings demolished to make way for new real estate development. Now the hills and the trees which surrounded Heilborn are filled with high-end housing for the wealthier inhabitants of Philadelphia. Halborn itself fell into decay and ruin over the next 20 years. It soon became vacant and was used as a spot for vagrants to hide out or for kids looking for a good scare. It finally burned down in 1987. Replay hauntings, as they are sometimes called, happens when a place is imbued with an intense and powerful emotion, feeling or event. So strong that it latches itself to physical reality in some way that we don't quite understand. What can be said of ghosts? What can be said of the souls gone before, doomed to linger in the eternal suffering of repetition? Perhaps, like life, our actions, our deeds, or lack thereof, Leave behind a beauty, or a terror, an echo through time. Devilry was written and produced by me, Matthew William Monsinger. Music by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoy listening to Devilry and would like to help support us, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. To stay up to date on all things devilry, you can follow us on Twitter, at DevilryPod, or on Facebook, on Facebook.com forward slash devilrypodcast. A full transcript of this episode, as well as a complete bibliography, is available at devilrypodcast.com. Go there if you'd like to learn more about the strange and terrible things of the world. Stay weird, my devils.